everyone. My name is Ian McLaughlin, and I study the brain at the University of Pennsylvania uh, in Philadelphia. And you might have seen me on Periscope, where we chat about the brain in a sort of impromptu way. And while we can achieve a pretty good amount of detail on Periscope, we can't really achieve the kind of depth that people have contacted me wanting. And so I decided I'd start a podcast with a friend of mine. Hi, everyone. Uh, my name is Bo, and I am a fellow scientist. Uh, but my PhD is in material science and engineering, so I actually don't know very much about the brain at all. Uh, so I'm excited to chat with Ian today to learn more. And let's just jump right into the weeds. What is neuroscience? Right. So this is going to be a pretty dense podcast, much denser than any of the following podcasts for sure. This is for the people who are like me, and we easily get lost without a context. And unfortunately for the topic at hand, this context is very complicated and has a lot of specialized language. So I see this being used to just make you fairly comfortable when I use words like circuits, networks, neurons, neurotransmitters, impulse or action potential, and so on. Um, and so also, who is this podcast not for? Other neuroscientists. They're welcome to read and critique my peer-reviewed publications, tear them to shreds, cite them, love them, or hate them. This is geared towards someone who's interested in the brain but hasn't suffered through the years of coursework to pound in the differences between consciousness and cognition, which, if you're interested in finding out, check the show notes for a link to an essay by a famous neurophilosopher named David Chalmers. So what is the goal for the podcast? Right. So the goal is to break down the most complicated three-pound mass in the universe into digestible chunks. Uh, so, so like a delicious steak, I'm going to go from big to small. That sounds like a really ambitious but yummy <laughs> endeavor. <laughs> and, okay, so we all kind of have this idea of what a brain looks like, but really what is a brain? <laughs> right. So, okay, so in a nutshell, it's just a dense collection of cells that can send and receive information to other types of cells. And so in the human brain, we have about 86 billion neurons with at least as many glial cells, which is a sort of partner-type cell that interacts and alters neural function. We'll talk about that a little bit later. And uh, between all of these are hundreds of trillions of points at which information is exchanged between them, which are called synapses. And so out of all of this complexity emerges everything you consider to be you, your memory, love, hate, ambitions, secrets, urges, appetites, uh, inability to sleep, and tendency to daydream. Wow, those are big numbers. So where did all this complexity come from? Well, uh, we, and by that I mean all animals, are descended from a common ancestor from almost 550 million years ago. And this thing is likely to be some kind of like creepy tube worm thing that had a very, very simple nervous system. And then for like the next 500 million years, we saw a huge explosion of variations on the theme of nervous systems. And generally speaking, as an animal increased in size, so did its brain. Uh, there was a recent paper in the Proceedings of the Royal Society by a group in Stockholm that suggests that predation pressure has likely been a driving factor in the evolution of brain sizes and prey species. And, and that's just one example. The point being that environmental pressures, whether predator-prey relationships or reproductive behaviors, were almost certainly the drivers in sculpting the modern brains we see today. That's really interesting. So if we humans are the top dog, the top of the food chain, <laughs> how are our brains different from other animals that are lower on the food chain? Yeah, so all of us vertebrates have a very similar bl blueprint. Uh, we look very similar during the very earliest periods in embryonic development. Uh, there are these little, three little blebs off of a central railroad um, as the embryo is developing its nervous system. And these blebs are called the forebrain, the midbrain, and the hindbrain, uh, each of which will be devoted to slightly different functions like movement, breathing, sensory processes. 
uh, and memory. Are blebs the scientific term? Yeah, right. Yeah, no, not quite. Yeah, so we, science, of course, has like these effete words. Uh, they're the prosencephalon, mesencephalon, and rhombencephalon. Uh, but forebrain, midbrain, and hindbrain work <laughs> just as well. Um, and so after those early stages of development, different animals will begin to show biases in size towards the forebrain or the midbrain, while others will grow them to be approximately the same size, like fish and frogs. And in us, we humans, uh, what makes us unique is an emphasis on the forebrain. It really takes the main stage. But there are more than just three parts of the brain, right? Yeah, right. So after the earliest stages of development, we begin to see a lot more functional complexity in the brain, which means we start seeing more regions of the brain that become dedicated to like specialized tasks. And so, of course, with this comes a lot more names, like the telencephalon, diencephalon, and et cetera. And, and just for the listeners, I'll never rely on using these terms. So just suffice it to say that during development, different systems within the brain come online at different times. So the brain at 11 weeks in the womb won't be quite as complete as a brain at like eight months in the womb. But in a nutshell, uh, what's, what's happening in the latter periods of development is the growth of specialized regions of the brain that will contribute different components of the signal's underlying consciousness. So then from those sort of developmental stages, now we begin to see structures that begin to resemble an adult brain. Um, and so we use words to describe the general regions of the brain, sort of like sailors use to describe regions of a boat. So like anterior or rostral means towards the front. Posterior or caudal means towards the back. Uh, and dorsal or superior means towards the top of the brain, like where a dorsal fin would be on a dolphin. And ventral or inferior uh, uh, for towards the bottom of the brain. And so like, for example, the brain stem is the most posterior and ventral part of the brain. Uh, and so there are two general divisions of mass in the brain, right? We have the cerebrum and the cerebellum. And by and large, we're going to be talking about the cerebrum, which contains the greatest diversity of neuronal function, uh, functionality. Everything from mood, appetite, memory, and future planning occurs almost entirely in the cerebrum. The cerebellum is a very recognizable part of the brain. Uh, it's very dense and wrinkly and resembles a scrotum. <laughs> so, uh, so because of the complexity of the cerebrum, uh, we further divide it into like four general lobes. And some of you guys might have uh, heard of this. So moving from back or posterior to front or anterior and bottom or ventral to top uh, or dorsal, we have the occipital lobe where most of our vision is processed, the temporal lobe where a huge variety of behaviors and capabilities undergo processing, everything from like our ability to hear, remember, speak. Then comes a parietal lobe, which participates in everything uh, from the sense of touch uh, to your sense of body and space. And then finally, the, the frontal lobes, which in humans is particularly sophisticated and important. It participates in everything from moving to predicting future events. Uh, but most importantly, uh, perhaps, is the fact that the frontal lobe sends off signals or inhibitory signals to the most primitive parts of, the, of our brain, the diencephalon and mesencephalon. Sometimes you hear it referred to as the lizard brain. Uh, so because we have such comparatively swollen forebrains, we're able to keep those primitive urges, which come from an evolutionarily primitive part of our brain, in check. Uh, and so we'll talk about how this happens in greater detail in a later conversation, but in a nutshell... The forebrain receives a ton of input from almost every part of our brain, which equates to being able to integrate memory, emotion, sight, taste, sound, and future predictions, enabling us to make more nuanced decisions regarding what the best course of action will be to accomplish whatever our goal might be. And uh, by the way, when I say the word primitive, it's not meant to be like derogatory or anything. All I mean by that is just evolutionarily older and simpler. Um, and so before we depart from regions of the brain, a point I want to make sure is super clear is that no one region of the brain is entirely responsible for any specific component of consciousness. 
Uh, rather, it is the fact that specific neurons within those lobes, not all of the neurons, but some of them, are connected to neurons within other lobes. These populations of neurons that are connected to each other, sometimes over pretty long distances, are referred to as networks or circuits. And I prefer to use the word circuits. You're going to hear me say that a lot. So circuits, kind of like the same circuits in a computer. Yeah, yeah, precisely, exactly. Uh, so so uh, why do we talk about circuits and, and why are they important? Uh, so circuits are really the meat and potatoes of the brain. Without circuits of neurons, there'd be no consciousness. we just have very versatile cells smushed up against each other, unable to communicate their computations with one another. It'd be like a room of people all having independent thoughts, but completely unable to speak or communicate with each other. It's like everyone in a coffee shop on their cell phone. <laughs> That's right. It's exactly right. Yeah. So, so we have these different loads of the brain that have unique types of neurons that do unique types of things. One cluster of neurons is able to decipher visual information, and then that cluster of neurons can speak to a totally different cluster of neurons that's responsible for determining if something is a threat to you. So now you can integrate vision into your ability to determine if something is threatening, which is pretty useful. And so the cables that connect neurons, we call them uh, axons and dendrites. And so axons are the cables that send out information from a neuron, and dendrites are the things that receive information from other neurons. And so we'll go into more detail uh, about this level of anatomy, but an important thing to keep in mind is that the area at which two neurons communicate with one another is called a synapse. So in other words, it's, it's just the junction between two different neurons. And depending on the type of neuron, different types of signals can be sent and received. And when I say signal, that really means a specific electrochemical unit of communication. So the things that compose these electrochemical signals are things like neurotransmitters and electrical current. Uh, and there's a tremendous variety of different types of signals that all bring a neuron to either be more or less likely to be activated. And so here's why circuits are really important uh, and why they are what I study, by the way, instead of regions of the brain. Well, you can't really say a lobe or anatomical point in the brain is responsible for any one aspect of consciousness. You can say that a specific circuit is entirely responsible for a given process. The circuit may be super complex, like the mesocortical limbic circuit, which implicates a wide, wide variety of areas of different lobes of the brain. But it's accurate to say that our ability to anticipate reward is derived almost entirely from this circuit. So in other words, while you can't say that the temporal lobe is responsible for reward, you can say that there's a circuit between the temporal and frontal lobe that is. So is there a circuit that engages all the parts of the brain? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, so, I mean, at a certain level, there is, but the nature of that circuit is going to be really, really wide. There's going to be a lot of real estate in the brain that's included in that sort of kernel, that central circuit. So maybe that I would develop that circuit if I were multitasking or just doing a bunch <laughs> of different things. So. Yeah, maybe. But your ability to multitask will be distinct from your ability to juggle, right? So it, it'll be involved in sort of everything, um, but it's not responsible necessarily for any one thing, right? Okay. All right, so we have all these messy, complex circuits of neurons that are all active at different times, sometimes converging on one part of the brain and other times diverging to completely distinct parts of the brain. So what exactly are all these neurons doing? And in fact, what exactly is a neuron? So a neuron is like the basic unit of the brain. Like imagine a soundboard, a very big soundboard with a bunch of volume knobs. In this case, about 86 billion of them. Right? And each knob is a neuron, and it controls the volume of a very specific part of a very complex song. And so by turning up the volume on any one of those knobs, the quality of the song can change very subtly or very dramatically. The same goes for the contributions of specific neurons to consciousness. They all contribute some facet of consciousness, some facets being more critical than others, like your ability to breathe, while others being much subtler, like recognizing the differences between a sofa stool and chair. 
Um, and so when we're talking about neurons, there's relatively few features, actually just like five, of neurons that are able to give rise to this huge range of variations. And so the first is just the structural components of individual neurons. Uh, the next is just the mechanisms by which they produce these electrochemical signals uh, that, that signal between neurons. Uh, the next is the patterns of connections or synapses, right, between neurons and the things to which they project, like muscles or organs, things that aren't neurons. Uh, the next is the relationships that specific circuits of neurons have with uh, specific behaviors and elements of cognition. And then the last is how neurons and all of their connections, and therefore circuits, are sculpted by experience throughout life uh, through a process called neuroplasticity. And, and of course, we'll talk about neuroplasticity in a later conversation. But suffice it to say that it describes the fact that the shapes and components of circuits are subject to a surprisingly high level of change. And there's a huge variety of shapes and sizes of these buggers. And uh, so these points, by the way, were taken uh, from the Principles of Neuroscience, uh, the fifth edition. It's like the classic neuroscience textbook. Uh, I recommend you check it out if you want uh, more detail. So just to be clear, one neuron is one cell, right? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. Uh, yeah, and, and, I mean, when you look at a picture of a neuron, it kind of resembles like a messy amoeba or like a jellyfish. It has a, a belly and a bunch of tentacles. And so like the belly we call the cell body or the soma. Uh, and then the, the tentacles are those axons and dendrites that we talked about before. Axons sending out information and dendrites receiving information. And so the cell body is where the nucleus of the cell is, which is sort of, sort of like a USB flash drive that contains every single gene you inherited from your parents, numbering somewhere between 20 and 25,000. Uh, so, so those genes uh, uh, are the instructions needed to create everything in your body, from fingernails and hair to muscles and neurons and neurotransmitters. And so we'll talk a little bit more about genes a little bit later in this conversation. Um, but, it, you know, it's important to keep in mind that there are a variety of other things that are stuffed in every single neuronal cell body uh, that are called organelles. So these are things, these are things like uh, mitochondria, endoplasmic reticula, Golgi bodies, etc. You, you guys don't have to worry about that stuff, really. In my opinion, they're not really all that interesting. Uh, just understand that, similar to the way that we have a kidney and livers and lungs and intestines, and all of them have specific functions, all, the, all of which can go wrong, the same goes for neuronal organelles. So what exactly do neurons do? They send and receive information in the form of electrochemical signals. That's their job. Uh, so a neuron will fire an impulse, and in neuroscience we call that an action potential, which will result in the release of neurotransmitters, or electrical current, towards um, another neuron. And the next neuron does the same, and then the next, and then the next, and so on. Like a cascade. Yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. And, so, and this is happening constantly. In fact, every single millisecond, hundreds of thousands of times. And as if that level of complexity weren't enough, neurons are not the only character in this movie. Another type of cell, called glia, interact and alter neurons. And we have, at the very least, just as many glial cells as we have neurons. Um, and so glia is Greek for glue, which kind of reveals why we understand comparatively very little about glia compared to neurons. Uh, we used to think that glia were just basically the glue that like hold, held neurons in place. Uh, but they do a lot more than that, and they're really rather different relative to neurons. Uh, so, like, for example, importantly, they, they don't have axons and dendrites. So glia do everything from immune functions to insulating axons and preventing signals from leaking out of axons in the form of myelin to even releasing neurotransmitters themselves. And so if you've ever heard of multiple sclerosis or its lesser-known cousin Guillain-Barre syndrome, uh, these diseases result from disruptions of glia, not neurons. Uh, specifically myelin, which is a type of glial cell, basically, is progressively lost, which has substantial ramifications. And so because we used to think less of them, 
Glial cells are not that well understood, but are now sort of being recognized as being critical components of our neurophysiology. Um, okay, so, so now we have regions of the brain that have specific types of neurons that send particular types of signals to different parts of the brain forming circuits, all of which is modulated by glial cells. Sounds pretty complex, right? Um, well, yeah. even <laughs> right. So, so e- even the points of communication between neurons, which are called synapses, are fantastically complex, having hundreds of proteins, receptors, and neurotransmitters. And so, importantly for our conversations, the neurotransmitters and synapses are a critical means by which neurons communicate with each other. Um, so, all neurotransmitters are basically just molecules with specific shapes. And these specific shapes are able to interact with specific receptors, sort of like a key having a dedicated keyhole. But uh, there are often a wide variety of receptors that are able to recognize just one neurotransmitter, as though there are multiple keyholes for just one key. And so each of these receptors, when activated, will do slightly different things, like directly turn a neuron or off or change the interactions of tiny proteins and molecules within the cell, turning certain genes on or off. And so, so for example, you've probably heard of a few neurotransmitters like dopamine, serotonin, GABA, norepinephrine. And so it, it's just ki- uh, critical to keep in mind that no one neurotransmitter is responsible for any one specific aspect of consciousness. Like dopamine is not the reward neurotransmitter. Rather, they all participate in each aspect of consciousness. So, so again, think of this like a song. One note played over and over again doesn't really result in a very interesting song. But several notes played at different times and different combinations can result in a huge variety of songs. So the same goes for neurotransmitters, contributing to a huge variety of signaling. So that was a ton of really meaty information. (laughs) And it almost seems like, you know, learning about the brain is like discovering more and more of the universe as you go farther out or smaller and smaller atomic particles. There's just infinite complexity. Yeah, I, I know. It, it's true. It, it's sort of like, like for all we know, we're really just standing at like the foothills of a huge mountain. Um, and by the way, the complexity doesn't stop there. So the relationships between genetics and the brain are almost innumerable. I mean, the, like the perennial debate, nature versus nurture, uh, of whether or not we're born to behave in a certain way, have addictions, be violent, be intelligent or depressed, is still going on in labs every day. And, and so in a nutshell, every aspect of who you are results from a collaboration between the two. It's not just one or the other. And so the genes you inherit predispose you to behave in a certain way, sometimes just slightly and sometimes almost inescapably. But those predispositions are only revealed under certain environments. So like like the example I use is Albert Einstein, who is like an irrefutable genius, right? He fundamentally changed the way we understand the universe because he saw the universe in a unique way. Some evidence suggests that he might have had like a very significant anatomical difference that's like rarely ever seen, but that's pretty like contentious and debatable. Uh, but I mean, regardless, he certainly had a unique mind that enabled him to couple physics and math in a way that had never been done before. And so, but it's important to, to maintain that he was born in a situation that enabled him access to the education and ability to work on these things. Uh, would he have been a genius if he was born in like Mongolia several thousand years prior? Certainly not. In fact, he might have even been ill-suited for survival, unable to adapt to the demands of his environment. So, so the point here is that the influence of genes is generally only revealed in the right environment. And so we have genes for everything, from cellular components responsible for making most of our neurotransmitters, to some neurotransmitters themselves, to the scaffolding of neurons, to the neuron and glia themselves. Um, so and while each person's genome is more similar to another human than it is different, there is the possibility of slight variation of the same gene, which will result in slight variations of their products. 
So this will be like a slightly different shape of a receptor or slightly more neurons in a certain area or slightly more connections between two areas of the brain. And all of this will result in slightly different behavioral and cognitive predispositions, like a propensity for depression or addiction or perhaps resulting in autism or Alzheimer's. So this elbow room of variation, these slight differences that are what make uh, each of us different, brings me to sort of like the rationale behind the name of this podcast, Wired to be Weird. Um, so, so one of the most profound aspects of the human brain is the ability to adapt to almost any challenge, environment, or idea we encounter. It wouldn't be inaccurate to consider the brain something like an adaptation engine. We create new connections between neurons that had never communicated with each other before. We increase or decrease the number of a receptor or release more or less of a neurotransmitter. And circuits can even exchange functional responsibilities. And all of these capacities are subject to individual variation resulting from those slight alterations of our genes. And so this is the very thing from which the beauty and horror of humanity emerges. It's what makes us truly human. Uh, while we see the world in very similar ways, we all also have some slight difference that, that enables us to interact with the world in slightly different ways. So in other words, we're all a little weird, right? This weirdness is what's enabled us to survive for, almost, for, for about 200,000 years, to progress from dedicating the entirety of our consciousness to survival and reproduction, and, and, and enable us to sculpt our environment, produce symphonies and sonatas and tell stories, and contemplate the universe itself. It's also what causes genocide and warfare and addiction and schizophrenia. It's the most important aspect of the human condition, and it results in a huge range of complexity. So there's a lot to talk about.